Hello and welcome to Sex, Psychics and Psychedelics, Discovering Inner Liberation. My name is Banana Jane Garnett. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, a lover of freedom and a relentless explorer of the mind. Please come join me on my journey in hot pursuit of inner illumination and liberation. For more about me, you can find me at the Banana Jane on Instagram. Now let's dive in. My next guest is Britta Love. Britta Love is a somatic sex educator, a writer and a healer. Today, I'm going to speak with Britta about some of my favorite topics, shadow, power and accountability within sex and psychedelia. Welcome, Britta. Hey, Jane. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. How are you? I'm as well as one can be in the burning dumpster fire of the world right now. How are you? Okay. Okay. I'm super distracted by this poster behind you. Do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. You are not (laughs) obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. Ooh, good start. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Tell me more. Tell me more. It gets right to it, doesn't it? Um, It's actually something that I've had on my wall the past year. And like whenever I get overwhelmed by everything in the world, I connect to that because it's actually a poetic like reconstruction of a few lines from the Talmud, from ancient Jewish um, texts, which makes me feel a little grounded and like, wow, this is, people have been feeling this for a long time. And also, I think there's kind of like a thing that happens in our culture often where it's like either you're deep in the social justice awareness of what's happening in the world and you're burnt out and it's overwhelming, or you find your way to sort of kind of bypass it spiritually and just be like, it's all for the best. And you kind of, the culture often like encourages you to sort of give up your piece in it that you can change, you know? And so like, to me, the piece is kind of like remembering, I don't have to be able to fix it all. And I can just stay with it and be aware and be present to the enormity of of it all without feeling so overwhelmed because I'm just one more person who's going to try to contribute my piece. And I find that like my whole body, even when I like feel into that, just goes into a different state. And I found that I really need to be there in order to stay in contribution, but not actually burn out. Yes. Yeah. Well, well done for for finding that that (laughs) sweet spot. I know we have to kind of keep pulling focus on it. I I think, you know, it's, it's so easy to check out. And I think sometimes we have to, I do, I do feel like numbing and avoidance have their their places but but you know we've got to keep bringing awareness back in and I was just um, reading some of your wonderful articles and I think there was a line in one that was about um, shadow power and accountability in um, the, the sex and psychedelic communities so I do want to kind of delve into to these topics um, which yeah. are really kind of favorite ones of mine and I know that you know we well you didn't meet me I, I met you as an audience member in your uh, Sex and, and Psychedelics panel at the MAPS conference that, that I think we both just attended. And it was packed. Like people, I mean, <laughs> this was a popular talk. People wanted to know about sex and psychedelics. Of course, I was pleased because my podcast. But yeah, I mean, it, it sort of reinforced this idea that there's a lot of experimentation going on now. There's a lot of what might be called waking up or might be called wanting to wake up. um you know and um yeah I think we're back in back in the the world of fine lines here but I'm curious you know what's your and this may be a bit of a heavy question but I think it's important just to kind of anchor in it 
let's go right into it. Uh, yeah. What's your experience of abuse of power within these worlds and communities? Oof. All right, Jane. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll share with you too. I think we've got to, you know, we've got to roll up our sleeves. Yeah. I mean, I, I can tell you that, you know, I've been involved in some form of working with psychedelics or another since 2008, 2009. Um, I would say like 2009 is when I really started being more in community around it, whether it was, you know, traveling to, to, to work with ayahuasca around the world in different places and Gabon with Iboga and local ceremonies wherever I was living in London and New York. And there are rare exceptions to the rule that abuses of power were, were, whether they were like explicit and egregious, like a traditional healer or a non-traditional healer. I don't want to say one or the other. That was just the person who came to mind. It happens mm. in every section of psychedelic space. So I don't want to say that, I mean, this is happening with psychedelic therapists too. It's not just because of the underground, like we need to be looking broadly at this. Power generates opportunities for abuse. And we live in a culture that doesn't have good consent culture and also has a lack of awareness about how trauma is often perpetuating cycles of abuse and harm. So it's like, it's just everywhere. And my experience was watching healers be predatory with young women who had come to heal their childhood sexual trauma and spent years working through the re-traumatization of being sort of, you know, selected and kind of groomed by this healer. People who ended up in relationships with their healers, like relationships, you know, that on that kind of a power dynamic while you're still working with the person as a healer is just never going to be ethical or okay, pretty much. I mean, there's no hard and fast rules for anything. I believe in a living body of ethics, but I don't believe that one can ethically be engaged with someone as someone's space holder while they're going deeply in vulnerable states and then uh, also be an equal in relationship. Like that's two very different kinds of relationships. And I saw also like in subtle ways, like, um, which weren't subtle to me <laughs> in my own experience, but, you know, um, some of the ways that spaces can be super oppressive if you have a different gender expression, if you have a different sexuality expression, if you have a uh, history like I do in, as a sex worker, I mean, the whorephobia and homophobia that I encountered in a lot of very like uh, psychedelic spaces that are based in like sort of a lot of more new age thought that is kind of often perpetuating a lot of unconsciously perpetuating a lot of patriarchal thought. Um, wait, wait. Okay. So I want to, this is interesting. I want to back <laughs> down on this a little bit more. So, sure. so before you came to psychedelia, you were a sex worker mm -hmm. and like in what capacity? So uh, I guess I was uh, 19 years old when I first became an escort in London. And I don't know that I would have um, necessarily ended up doing that work if I had stayed in New York where I grew up because in London it, it's legal. So it wasn't as mm -hmm. big a jump to make maybe. And, you know, it was kind of my own way to push back against the fact that I already, I mean, there was economic need. And there was also the fact that I already felt like I was performing sexuality for potential partners and culturally as well from a very young age. So in my very like neurodivergent, like eminently practical mind, why wouldn't I just get paid for that? Why am I doing that for free? That yeah. was basically. <laughs> sure. And so sure. I think my 19-year-old self was really wise. And actually, it was kind of like up until that point, I hadn't been able to have my own boundaries, be connected to my own desire, express my own limits. 
And when I started working, it was like, oh, well, I get the limit of time and I get the boundary of how much money for it. And even though I still was like a long slope to learning how to then within that time say, no, I don't want that or don't do this or, you know, this is how I like to be touched. That was, you know, that's the lifelong journey of healing for anyone, I think, is coming into deeper and deeper awareness of that. It gave me the first opportunity for like boundaries and limits and a sense that this was my body that I had agency over. So it was an incredibly like wise, I think, for a teenager like kind of decision for me, for where I was at my life. And so at that point, I had not yet, I was sort of scared of psychedelics. I actually was like a real goody two-shoes until I was 19. Like I'd never touched a joint. I like only had like maybe two or three very brief like physical uh, connections with other people. And I just dived into sex work. And then I like started experimenting a little bit with like uppers and downers, have never done psychedelics. And then I met a sex work client who was like, what kind of drugs do you do? And I was like, oh, I don't, you know, trying to be like, don't, don't want to fulfill that stereotype, right? And he was like, oh, well, yeah, you know, I love MDMA, but my favorite drug is LSD. And I was like, what? I'd never met anyone who, I mean, this is 2008. I mean, I hadn't met anyone who really tripped. I'd heard about like people tripping, but I hadn't met anyone. I thought, what? And he kind of opened my whole mind to what psychedelics were. And that was when I like began this journey. Which by 2009, I was, you know, going off on Daniel Pinchbeck's like reality sandwich trips to Costa Rica to drink ayahuasca. And I was getting initiated into Buiti and Gabon uh, with, with Iboga. And it was in those experiences that I started becoming aware of the fact that discernment is so deeply necessary when choosing who you're going to get that vulnerable and sit with because I was having experiences that were actually re-traumatizing or where it wasn't really safe for me to let go. Right, within the psychedelics community. So were you yeah. still involved in sex work as you were starting your psychedelic journey? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. How did that inform your understanding of what you were doing? So this is how I feel like sex and psychedelics have kind of woven themselves together in my life because... You know, right away with sex work, I started occasionally having clients who I saw regularly enough who were really wonderful people. In fact, I had a lot of wonderful clients, mostly wonderful clients. Few not so wonderful, but that's like who doesn't have a customer they don't like every once yeah. in a while. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, I would start to relax a little bit and start to really be more attuned to my body and, and have clients who really wanted to be more attuned to my body. And so that kind of brought me into a different relationship to sex a little bit, like moving out of the performativity. And then I started working with psychedelics and I was coming into an awareness of my anxiety and how my need for control and, you know, and like fighting these like bad, quote, bad trips and realizing how potent surrender was. And then I would go back and have my next sexual experiences, whether it was at work or not, and I would realize, oh, I know how to actually just breathe through this moment, realize I've tensed up and go deeper into presence in my body mm. and find like deeper pleasure orgasm that I was not accessing in those kind of um, environments before. So it was kind of like, well, this is interesting. They're the same teachings, but they can be good integration for each other. Yeah, absolutely. It's making me think of, you know, the first time I went back to my therapy practice after taking ayahuasca and how different it felt to just be sitting with someone and how the intimacy had just kind of ratcheted up. 
<laughs> you know, I'd gotten more in touch with my own humanity and then therefore, you know, I was more in touch with their humanity and it was less yeah. this sort of, um, I, I hadn't realized before that I was kind of, I'd gotten into like a man in the white coat syndrome and I'm sure there's a parallel as a sex worker. I mean, I don't think these things are very different, you know, which is, yeah, you're the one who is, you know, you're supplying, right? <laughs> <laughs> You're supplying. You have the answer, whether it's the you know the, the the sexual experience or the psychological experience. You're supplying, and in that, there's some kind of illusion that you know and that they don't know. And there's this funny kind of like implicit power thing. And then there's also the the idea that you're being paid, and then that sort of puts you down in terms of the power. And there's a whole like complex sort of little you know invisible grid of power dynamics going on. And I felt like after ayahuasca it really shifted that. It's almost like it kind of threw away that grid. And I was like, oh, hi, you. Like, you're, <laughs> you could be my sister, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh, hey, what are we going to do? Life is hard. You know, simple, simple intimacy. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying life has stayed simple since then, but there was a nice, there was a nice kind of experience of, of that shift going on. Yeah, absolutely. And power dynamics like that are so... I mean, it's so interesting because I think, you know, when you're holding space for someone, if the finding that balance of meeting them without the white coat on, you know, meeting them human to human, knowing that the person in front of me is actually their own best expert and I'm just here to hold the space for them to find that inner compass. And then at the same time, remembering that I am holding the space for them and we can't just be buddies or lovers or fall into that other kind of intimacies that want to happen. You know, I mean, that's something that, so my, my training, my background in sex work led me to somatic sex education because I realized that I was often healing people. <laughs> I realized that what was happening was like people but, okay, were yeah, and, and just, you know, I know what you mean by healing people, but you know, my, yeah. my goal with this podcast is to, to reach people who are not so kind of like, who are maybe even mm -hmm. a bit skeptical about words like healing. So let's, what did that mean? What did sure. that look like? I mean, to me, healing is just a process of coming into relationship with all of your parts. You know, a lot of us have parts of ourselves that are, we were cut off from because we were exiled from them as kids from, by trauma, by shame, by abandonment, by all these things. And to me, healing is not having some perfect, like, whole, never had any issues before, like, restoration project. It's about being in relationship with all those parts and having a way of nurturing and caring for and keeping a loving eye on all those different parts, even the ones that are not so pleasant, which we all I like have. That. Keeping a loving eye on all those parts. That's very, <laughs> that's very nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, for me, I guess what I noticed doing sex work is that you know, clients would come in and they would have this kind of like, you know, all of the like stress and like shame around their desires or feeling rejected by the people they've been trying to connect with or by their own partners or, you know, feeling shut down around their specific desire that they is more taboo or whatever it is. And then by coming to see someone who was meeting them with complete or as much as I could summon on the given day presence and acceptance to be in the presence of someone like that and, you know, for two strangers just to get naked together, like without any of the social context and pressures and kind of games and figuring out, but just this sort of, for an hour, this is what we're doing. We know it's what we're doing. Let's be bodies together. 
you know, and just to say like different people have different relationships to their sex work. So my journey was coming more and more into embodiment with my clients and trying to bring more and more of my real self. For other people, like they want a lot more separation between parts of themselves and yeah, their work. Yeah, let's slow down around the word embodiment. So what does that mean, coming into embodiment? <laughs> Okay. So for me, embodiment, it's not a fixed state, but it's kind of a process of being attuned to what's happening in our bodies, moving from a place of what we're sensing in our bodies. So a lot of our culture and kind of colonized Western culture is very much like up here, right? It's it's mm. analytical. It's mm. what we're thinking. It's what's the most rational answer. It's like, what does the law say? You know, it's all up here. And there's a kind of weird duality that comes from Cartesian thought, if you want to get nerdy about it, around like the mind versus the body, right? Or like the body versus spirit. We separate these things out. Like Mm. these are different things, emotions and uh, reasoning. And a lot of other cultures don't create those binaries. And they see, for example, with embodiment, that the intelligence that we have, that we associate with our brain is actually emergent. It comes out of the collective intelligence and wisdom of our cellular intelligence and throughout our whole body is perceiving things all the time. And so to me, my move to sort of, you know, I did my graduate degree in consciousness studies initially, and then I moved my focus to embodiment studies because I felt like consciousness studies is focusing always on like consciousness as if it's something that's just happening in our brain. And to me, it's like an emergent, it's like the, the, there's a bigger intelligence that's coming out of this body from all the different kind. you know, the, the way the muscles are sensing, the way the organs are pumping, you know, like all those things are happening at once. And then it gets processed and yeah, our brain is kind of this super processor and it creates a linear thing that we then see as like the answer that we're experiencing, but it's coming from this whole collective system. So for me, that's like the like the intellectual explanation of embodiment. But for me, like on a basic level, embodiment was coming to work through more of my trauma so that I could notice what was happening in my body while it was happening and respond to it. Um, so that I started to really honor that if I don't like a certain kind of touch, I'm going to correct it or ask it to stop. If I'm really having a certain like desire for some orange juice, I'm going to not just wave it away. And I'm going to say, yeah, my body's saying orange juice. I wonder why, you know, like just attunement to the body, because then we kind of, we tell ourselves that we actually like that these things are wise enough to, to bother trusting. And there's a whole form of intelligence that unfolds from that. And I think sex gets better. General pleasure gets better when you start like you know, and sometimes you can gently redirect the desire. It might be like, you know, I want my third ice cream this week, but actually I think what I'm looking for is something like with some sweetness and a sense of like indulging my childhood self. So maybe I'm going to have a really ripe piece of fruit that I think is healthier and go sit on a swing. You know, it doesn't mean you're mm-hmm. always going to mm-hmm. indulge exactly the thing as it comes, but just honoring the desire, yes. which is so important. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Allowing... Uh whatever is there to, to, to be there. I mean, it's, it's feels like a bit of a mirror to my own journey. And I mean, tell me if this, this resonates with you, but you know, there's that, this idea that we, we teach what we need to learn. And and part of my journey as a therapist was telling people that it was okay to feel, encouraging them to feel, allowing, you know, creating the space of sort of allowing and, and realizing, you know, with the help of psychedelics, that, you know, this is what I need. Um, and 
not just me, you know, it was working for other people, but it was, you know, this, this nice um, positive feedback loop of like, ah, I'm hearing myself say this is allowed. Could this be true for me also? I'm not just like this alien creature who's come down to bequeath a little wisdom to these people. You know, it's like I yeah, exist. Totally. I think that's one of the things that really commonly happens when you're called to do certain kinds of work. You yes. know, so my work as a somatic sex educator, I feel like I'm standing there because every time I'm holding space for someone else to come more into their erotic selves or move through blocks that they have in that, it's giving, it's reminding myself and through their resonance, giving myself permission again to yeah. stay in the journey that I'm in. Yes, yes, yes. And I think this is so important in terms of sort of our, our headline topics because. We must stay in, I believe we must stay in that mirror in the sense that, you know, our work is never done. We are never going to be fully wise, complete, embodied, you know, that, that uber I, I teacher. I got 100% who knows. enlightenment yesterday, Jane. I don't know what you're talking oh, about. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, I, I mean, you know, I, me too. I'm, I'm just trying to be humble, you know. <laughs> no, but, but, you know, in terms of, I think that, you know, the, the abuse of power and um, it does tend, it's not always men, but it tends to be, I think, a bit more kind of, aligned with the male ego, which is just, just seems to kind of manage to protect itself more, more sort of strongly than, than the female brain, which seems to be so um, sort of naturally kind of diverse and always pulling in different kinds of information and therefore processing a lot more stuff. Um, you know, having periods, giving birth, all of this kind of thing. I think, you know, our bodies are sort of more open and, and therefore maybe our minds, maybe, our, maybe we sort of have to, you know, go through more, more processing and humbling of the ego. I mean, this obviously big topics. But this abuse of power situation seems to come time and time again from this crazy idea that, you know, just because you've become a shaman, a guru, a teacher, and you've taken a bunch of whatever it is, you can put yourself above somebody else. Mm. It's nuts, really. It's absolutely fucking nuts. It's also built into the operating system of our culture. And so what I've kind of noticed myself over the years is that rather than looking to some of the like, you know, biological or nature-based explanations for like why there is, yes, there's definitely a gender division in, 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 in certain kinds of harm, particularly that we're aware of, right? And there's also a gender division in terms of how power is distributed in our culture. So I started getting more interested in the power and the way that being given access to power and privilege over a lifetime, as well as being encultured into what is acceptable, you know, as a cis man in this culture versus when you're being, you know, when you're assigned female birth and you're sort of brought into that kind of, this is what you should be as a woman. That it's, um, well, okay, rewind. I've encountered so many situations of harm once there is female leadership that I can no longer subscribe to a biological explanation. And I think it can be almost dangerous because we can be blindsided, especially in an era now where we're trying to, you know, there's a lot more awareness about more, whether it's racial or gender-based or any of the, you know, different axes of power, you know, rebalance. And sometimes I think what happens is we get so focused on, okay, well, this, this person is, identifies as a woman and they're in power. So this is, oof, that's, that's a relief. Yeah, no, and absolutely. And that is quite dangerous, <laughs> yeah, right? No. Well, exactly. So, I mean, I think anywhere you think you can kind of take shelter is potentially dangerous. I mean, looking at the other side of the power dynamic, right? The part that is, yeah, I mean, if, okay, again, speaking more from my sort of my own experience, you know, a lot of my journey was wanting to take shelter underneath 
somebody else who knew more my daddy issues essentially and they could have been projected onto women as it happened it tended it was a series of of wise men who disappointed me one after another inevitably humans that they were and gosh I gave them so much power it must have been quite seductive um (laughs) licking up their words you know just loving it and and yeah disappointment 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 but yes you know from my part in that being giving away my power for the simple reason that it's pretty scary to look at what I think is reality, which is that nobody has the answers. I know. That's a very frightening thought. And I think that culturally, that's also a norm, right? Is that we look to the experts, who's up on the stage at the conference, who's got, right? We kind of create this, who's the therapist? And, you know, I think that there's... um. Obviously, there's a utility to having a space for some projection, right? There's a utility. You can have the projection of the therapist. It's a safe place to work through it. The therapist reflects back. The projection doesn't engage with you in that level. And you can hopefully, bring, hopefully, hopefully yeah. and yeah. you can bring awareness to it and heal it. So it's kind of like a game if you think of it that way. But when it's not seen that way consciously, when the person is really looking up and thinking, this person knows more than I do, even about my own self. And the person up there thinks, yeah, I do. I've got two master's degrees or I'm a 12th generation healer or I'm, you know, I've drank ayahuasca 500 times or whatever it may be. Like that's where it gets really dangerous. And I think that um, that culture of looking to experts, looking to others to do to us, to fix us, to have the answers leaves us really vulnerable. And that's not to say that our vulnerability in any way justifies or makes okay the fact that that was then exploited by someone else, right? Like that's- Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah. I think what's, what's quite interesting in terms of power, it made me think of, you know how kids talk about power, like I've got powers, like magic powers, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> The yeah. powers of flying, the powers of whatever, transformation. What I've encountered, particularly, I would say actually, well, in a boga, uh, a boga world, I worked with some really talented mystics, and they had powers. They had powers that they were very intelligent beings, and they were working with uh, incredibly powerful medicine that was helping them cultivate their, you know, intuition and their third eye abilities, right? Traveling abilities, channeling abilities. I mean, there's no question, you know, if I look back on the phase in my life when I was working with them both as, you know, sort of as a client and then as a facilitator, you know, starting to, to, to drink Kool-Aid and, and genuinely learning a lot, there were some real powers in the house. However, <laughs> <laughs> then you yeah. have to look, okay, so some people really have powers. You know, I, I work with psychics and there are some people who have brilliant visionaries and they can see stuff that you cannot see. Mm. That and is also- true. That is true, right? That's not bullshit. But the bullshit bit is, the, it, and this is the bit I think we need to look at, the why and the how. Why are they doing it and how are they doing it? And then, you know, looking at the history of that story, what is it that takes somebody into that position? You know, what is it that made me a therapist? Well, being a seeker, not having the answers, not knowing, being a sensitive creature feeling wounded. You know, these are realities, right? I don't think anybody comes into the healing world without uh, the feeling of needing to be healed themselves. So 
this is where we have to, I think, open our eyes and say how, you know, for me, I think, wow, how wonderful that these gifts can be cultivated and we can kind of learn on this more magical level and do not assume there's any stability around that whatsoever. No, and I think what's so interesting is like, so I think that we all have this capacity with different strengths and weaknesses in different areas to these other ways of knowing, whether it's, you know, mediumship and psychics or divination or dream work or all the different ways that you can receive knowledge from methods that are kind of just not normalized in our in Western culture. And some people are incredibly gifted at that. Some people are just, you know, never lost the ability from when they were kids. They've stayed, they've stayed attuned. And is it is um, powerful to work with someone like that who's stayed connected to their practice. And what I've seen in my own visions is that we're still always filters, right? Like we are everything that we receive from these other ways of knowing gets filtered through the limitations of our language our culture, our beliefs, our histories, our shadows. And so a very good channel is someone who has done so much work to know their parts and know their shadows and know the limitations of their beliefs that they will be able to sift through and, and kind of notice when something is like, oh, but that's what I always think about those kinds of people. Was that really what was coming through? Or was that the way that I, I it got filtered, it got percolated through, right? And that's why I never take someone else's, you know, I take what works for me and throw away what doesn't when I'm working with someone else's reading, which is, you know, that got to do that. Can't start thinking that this person is ever going to know everything, period. And also, I just really don't want to work with people who I don't feel have a working relationship to their shadow, you know, and that's, uh, so all of this stuff is really about discernment. And it's like so much more complicated than I wish we could say, all right, all our leaderships have, have vulvas now. So, okay, we're done, you know, or, okay, we've got a diversity like spectrum of every kind of person or, oh, these people are the people who are clear channels. But it's just, we're being asked in this era to come into this level of ongoing discernment and that requires embodiment. <laughs> so right. I was going to say, yeah, I, I agree that I increasingly feel there's nothing more important than discernment, but yeah, um, ongoing awareness of our humanness, which is the place that we need to discern from our humanness, other people's humanness, humanness being a kind of messy and shifting proposition, not a tidy fact. Not at all. And, you know, someone's reading for you one day might have all the resonance and another day, you know, might not be for you, you know, (laughs) and like that. And noticing when, you know, I feel like when I receive information from myself or others that's, that is meant for me to be taken in and worked with, I feel it lands in my body. I get shivers. I feel the rightness of it. Something just lands in a way that mm. feels good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yes. other, yeah. you know, other times, and speaking of healers and abuses of power, I remember the only time that I went just to for a divination with someone who I hadn't been connected to directly through community, but was like well-reviewed. And she gave me a tarot reading and uh, she asked me about my work history. And so, of course, sex work came up. And I'm, I'm a very honest person. I don't love concealing that. But I also know that by sharing that, a lot of people's projections around sex, around sex work, around everything are going to come up. And she gave me this horrific reading about, you know, the abuse I've subjected my body to and, you know, all the things. 
I mean, this has also happened to me in psychedelic space where I was in a Pioti, oh no, a San Pedro sweat lodge and the, a healer who I worked with for many years, who I considered like family, but who I'd never shared that part of my life with because I could feel it wasn't a safe person to share that with. And at that time, I was not very out about my work. You know, she used the line, because um, she kept the women in the lodge after the men left to do an extra prayer for the earth. And she said, and to the men, who use the earth like their prostitute. And so here I am sitting with like heart wide open, deep in this medicine experience and this assumption of what it means to work as a sex worker, how one is treated and the casualness of that. It was mm. like a, like a mm. sword through my heart. Mm. Like I, I honestly mm. have not been, I've not worked with them or even come back to sitting in those kinds of circles since because of how traumatic that was for me. And um, I just think that like, so the unawareness of the power of the words you're using as a facilitator and what you could bring up with people. And I, I should mention that I tried to talk to her about it afterwards because we all make mistakes too, right? And it could have been a healing opportunity to say, hey, I don't know if you've ever thought about sex work and the fact that there's probably many women who are working with you who have some experience of it, maybe bad relationships to it, good relationships to it, all sorts, the whole spectrum, who might feel like that assumption that their work meant degradation and violence was not actually like, that was going to be a very harmful speech to hear high on San Pedro and it's not lodge, mm. you know. Where did it go um, to in you? What was the, what was the, I mean, I understand there was a feeling of hurt, but what was that? Um, the fact that socially, to me, the reason that sex work can be dangerous, the reason that violence does happen in sex work is because culturally sex workers are seen as disposable by our culture. So we expect the violence, we, 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 we perpetuate the stigma, and in doing so, you know, there's a reason that we didn't catch that mass murderer on Long Island until last week, even though sex workers had recordings of his calls 10 years ago, they brought to detectives, but they weren't going to be given immunity from going to jail. So they didn't catch him and they could have saved lives. So there's kind of this like cultural stigmatization that is a self-perpetuating cycle for the violence. There's no reason that sexual services being sold should be an inherently violent thing more than me being a masseuse, me being any kind of hands-on practitioner. But in a culture where we're seen as an acceptable place for disrespectful behavior because we're less than human, because we're already fallen women, like all of those things. Yeah, it's, I don't know what's at the core of it. I mean, I've always actually been a bit mystified to the extent I feel like I'm naive on this topic, maybe. But <laughs> I just, I don't, I don't understand even why today that I've been interviewing different kind of partner surrogates, why that is still even considered to be taboo. I mean, it must be like, why, why, why is, I guess it's this braiding of sex and, and violence that we see increasingly in porn. And I can only imagine that is, I mean, some of that is it's a self-perpetuating machine, right? That, that mm -hmm. to yeah. unnumb, to find a, to find that sort of the spike of turn on, you need to kind of get harder and faster. So, so I think some of it's something about like that is encoded in the machinery and the speed of it. But yeah, why the violence? I mean, it must be connected to shame. It must be connected to trying to dump something of yourself that you don't find acceptable into somebody else. Some offloading. I mean, the way that I understand, you know, desire that can be violent, abusive, all those different kinds of fantasy, 
is sort of like, um, it's a realm that should be play, right? And in our culture, the porn that we see, you know, it's sort of like if all that porn was labeled, this is kink porn and everyone is like consenting here to the fact that this is their fantasy. And here's the inverse gender expression doing the same thing for if that's your kick, then that would be fine. It's the fact that we're only seeing like 90% of, let's say, or whatever it with this particular gender play that that represents the sort of patriarchal acceptability of it happening that way and normalization of it as not kink, but just that's just what sex is. Right, right. There's no awareness around the edges of it. It's sort of an assumption. Yeah. Which is very bad in terms of education, right? It's bad in terms of the... Yeah. The... The Not teenagers who are having to sponge up this sort of norm, normalized. It would be really <laughs> wonderful if that wasn't our first form of sex education. You know, <laughs> I mean, so I identified as asexual until I was 19 years old because I I came across porn when I was a young age, and I thought, well, hell no, <laughs> like, that's not, oh yeah. yeah, that's not for me. And so, and then it was really was about like coming into the realization that like, oh, because then there's the next stage, which is, wait, what if I have desires? that seem to perpetuate the violence? What if I fantasize about being raped? What if I fantasize about other forms of trauma? Does that make me a bad feminist? Does that make me a bad person? What does it mean about me? And so working through that shame, and I always found it a little bit limiting, like the sex positive movement has been like, you know, no shaming of any desire. And that's so important, but also without a kind of intellectual framework for, well, what is it then? What does it mean that I have these fantasies? Should I be trying to fix them? Is it bad for me to feed into them? Am I like, Mm. you know, calling in bad energy? Well, you know, like all of these ideas around it. That's been to me the latest chapter of trying to have a better framework of understanding of that. And that I've been greatly helped with by Artemisia Devine, who is this amazing a uh, former sex worker and coach who's created this whole map of the erotic unconscious and how to work with it. And Tell me it's her name again. really powerful. Artem- Artemisia Divine. Um, and uh, she's basically was very intuitive working with her clients as a dominatrix when she was doing that work and really just understood the symbolic logic of their desires and would learn to play with them in ways that they didn't even anticipate because she would get the common thread and then she would sort of like, you know, hit all those spots and they'd go, how did you know that that would be, you know? And it was because she was really understanding the language of the unconscious. And what she really came to understand in a really embodied way was that um, these desires were a form of intelligence that were allowing her clients to surrender. Yes, 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 yes. And I think if we could trust that our, our imagination is trying to heal us, meaning it is moving us, however bizarrely, as in dreams towards wholeness. I caught myself in a sort of control pattern the other day. I was with a friend who got really kind of nastily cheated on by her her husband. They were in a, a monogamous relationship. And during COVID, they started hanging out a lot with the neighbors and the guy started having sex with the woman next door without telling anyone and got her pregnant and were kids involved. I mean, it was a real mess, right? my dear friend and and now she's you know she's moved on right she's got a whole new <laughs> life but you know it's not what well, it didn't happen that long ago so we still mm. talk about it and we're talking about sex and fantasy and she said oh god I have these fantasies come up of the guy and this this girl who she's not like 
a huge fan of because, you know, <laughs> obviously not a huge fan of either of them at this point, right? That, that hasn't been some like very deep, really work done on it. But so, you know, these fantasies are coming up of, of them mm-hmm. having sex. And, you know, immediately I felt, you know, like, bad on her behalf. I was like, oh, that's got to be painful because of the jealousy. And, oh, I don't want my friend to have to, to go through that. You know, and I was so I was already trying to sort of fix it in some kind of way with my <laughs> thoughts. And I was like, well, what, what do you do about it? You know, do you do you steer those fantasies? She was like, no, I just let it happen. And, and I felt, mm-hmm. you know, a nice moment of being schooled. I was like, oh, yes, always. Because if you if you just like with an emotion, if you don't identify with it, if you allow it and you trust that there is some kind of greater movement taking place, then you don't have to be in a wrestling match with yourself. And being in a wrestling match with yourself is a thing that kind of perpetuates shame, stagnation and a lot of problems. A hundred percent. And I mean, that's the thing. And sometimes when we're talking about something like this, you know, it could feel really scary because then you think, well, what if I have desires that really are like not okay to actually enact unless there's a placing that's got pre-negotiated consent? How do I trust that if I get in the habit of just trusting and accepting my desires that I won't commit harm, you know, and that... um a, I kind of think it's more likely that you'll commit harm if you don't come into relationship with your desires because you repress them and you repress them and then our unconscious finds a way to enact them and we're not keeping that loving eye on those parts and suddenly, how did I do that? I look can't at, look I at religion, that. you know. I mean. right, exactly. exactly. And yeah. B, I know from Artemisia's teachings and I can't remember what she calls this, but she has a sort of process of like, you know, you, you notice the desire, you check in if this is a safe space to connect with it, you know, and then can I express this in a way that's consensual? Like what, or, or do I need to redirect this desire in a different direction? Mm. So there's always that check-in that you always have that other part of your brain around for what you're doing in the real world around the desire. It's not sort of like carte blanche, like, oh, well, we're just accepting our desires. And I just suddenly, you know, Mm. that's Mm -hmm. of course the big fear. Yes, Um, exactly. So it's it's creating a space for them where they are not going to harm other, other people, but they're allowed to process themselves out or express themselves as everything alive seems to want to. This brings me to the, um, you know, I was was reading you, uh, your uh, writing on on Betty Martin and the Wheel of Consent and thinking this is such such good stuff to to share with the listeners. So can you talk us through that and the, um, anything that's pertinent to share about that and the, I think the three minute exercise? Yeah, absolutely. So this is like kind of work that's like changed my life, like on par with psychedelics, which is really saying something. Um, So the Wheel of Consent is based on the three-minute game and it was developed by Dr. Betty Martin. And it came out of a realization that she was having that in her own relationships, a lot of times, you know, she always tells this funny story about going on this vacation to this place that she didn't really want to go to, but she went for her partner because he seemed to really want her to go. And they both went on this vacation. They had a kind of miserable time. And at the end, he said, well, I just wanted to go for you because I knew that this was so important for you that you wanted to go on this trip. And she was like, no, I was actually, I thought you. And because they hadn't been connected to desire and communicating with each other, they were both basically just enacting this, this script of almost like appeasing each other's desire without actually being in communication about it. And that combined with the work that she was doing with some of her clients, she came to develop the wheel of consent. And it's the idea is that you can separate out who's doing the action. So, um, you know, am I giving you a massage or are you giving me a massage, for example? from who it's for. So when I say a massage, generally we assume it's for the recipient, right? Like, you know, 
Um, but maybe I'm actually touching your hair, Jane, because it looks like really soft and lovely. And someone else might go, oh, isn't that so nice? Britta's like massaging Jane's head. And actually, you might not even want me to be touching your head. Or maybe you're just allowing it because you're like, you know, Britta would really like to stroke my hair. I don't mind. That's going to give them a lot of a lot of pleasure. So breaking apart these kinds of dynamics. So who is doing the action and who is it for um, is the basis of the wheel of consent because that creates these four different experiences that most things can kind of be broken down into. You're either taking your pleasure, allowing someone else to take their pleasure from you, or you're serving someone else to do something for them, or and you're accepting the action from someone else. And most of us are much more comfortable in one or two of those quadrants of the wheel than the other two. So a lot of people, especially if you've experienced a lot of trauma or um, were encultured to be, uh, be a, raised as a female in our culture, like, you know, allowing and serving are going to be really comfortable. Tell me what to do or do what you need to to me. That's going to be a lot easier than taking what I want, which even the word taking has such a like, ooh, I don't mm. want to be seen mm. as taking, take her, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. And yet that's like a really human need. We all need to express ourselves in these four quadrants. We need to be able to have a desire, ask for it, and then go take it if it's okay with the other person. Yeah, just a just a quick aside here is just you know I uh, I was married for a number of years and then I came back out into a, a different world a more pornified culture back into the world of of casual sex and I was meeting people who were saying so you know like it was a kind of contract at the beginning of the thing like what do you want to do and like I was so startled I was like it never was like that you know in the past it was like um uh we'd just sort of do stuff and stuff would happen yeah. <laughs> and it might be good it might not be good. So I was very challenged and you know, these were sort of, yeah, people yeah. who had sort of whole plans that were a bit, you know, pornified. But I, it made me think because I really was lost for words. And I thought, what, what would I ask for? And I would have, you know, if, if I'd found the words at the time, I think I would have said, oh, I would like to kiss a bit and see what happens and then check in, you know, something like mm-hmm. that. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I was just overwhelmed by this idea that I needed to have a sort of a list of, of you know, sexual demands. It's <laughs> also the kind of shadow yeah. of this sort of prescribed like sexual liberation TM sort of culture, right? Where it's like, we all need to have perfect, this is what I like, this is what I don't yeah, like. Yeah, exactly, because we, we don't always know. It's nice to explore. No. I mean, it's... Okay, and so, you need... Yeah like hopefully a framework of communication that allows you to explore without just kind of doing what I probably might've been happening in those earlier days, you know, this earlier era where you're kind of hope for the best. And then sometimes it just ends up being shit. And sometimes that chemistry just works. And if you're lucky, it keeps going for a while. Yeah, yeah, totally. And this is sort of the sense of like, I definitely remember this, this sense of like, oh, well, we've started. We're already kind of in process. And, and not knowing that you can actually press the pause button, go, actually, I'm not really enjoying this. Can we try yeah. something else? Or, or just totally. can we try something else? Or can we just pause? Or something like that. I've just been more like, okay, well, we're just going to, you know, fuck, or we're just going to do this. And, and yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's really interesting now to think of it. This, this is such a different way. Such a wild thing to think how many of us are patterned to just endure when something started, right? Like, yeah. it's like you don't even think about it. It's like, well, this is what's happening now. And it's actually going to be worse if I try to kind of course correct or 
end yeah, it. Yeah, it's really like, just let's get it over with. <laughs> get it. <laughs> close, your, close your eyes and think of England. It's very old-fashioned. Exactly. Um, okay, so, so we're doing the, let's say it's you and me, we're doing the three-minute game. And mm-hmm. do we ask for sexual things or non-sexual? It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. And I would start out like, the simpler, the better. So I would start out explicitly non-erotic because once you go into the erotic, it's like, it's like a whole like deep dive, right? So like generally when I teach, you know, workshops or I work with a client, we start with just touching like hands and forearms mm. as the limit. So it's mm. like really low pressure, you know, and we just take turns asking the questions, how would you like to be touched? And how would you like to touch me? And since we both get to ask both those questions, we get to have those four experiences of and the serve, accept, and the take, allow. Okay, so it's, it's three, if I said, how would you like to be touched? And then you would say, mm. gently with the fingertips or something like that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then I would set the timer for three minutes and do that for three mm-hmm. minutes. Mm-hmm. And before you say, set the timer, you would check in with yourself and be, is that a gift I'm willing to give? right? Is that something, it's not just by default that, well, that's what they want. Oh, that's, that's what, what I'm doing. Yeah. There's still consent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's that moment of check-in where it's like, okay, yeah, Brita wants to be touched softly with her fingertips. And yeah, actually, I feel good about that. Mm. Sometimes there might be a little negotiation, right? There might be like, you know, someone says, I really want deep tissue massage for the full three minutes. And you might say, you know, I'm a little <laughs> tired today, but I can do one minute of the deep yeah. tissue and yeah. then we could try something else, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So there's the yes and, there's the no but, there's all the spectrum mm-hmm. of consent too. Mm-hmm. And so we get to practice that. And then as the three minutes is going, I might decide actually, you know, just because I asked for that doesn't mean that's what I'm now stuck with, right? What if I realize that that's not actually the kind of touch that's like, or maybe it's fine, but it's just not like great. You know, so the the invitation is to be like, Jane, could you actually, when I said soft, I meant like not so much like feather like, but just like more like grazing. So could you like maybe slow it down a little bit and great? Oh, yeah, that's good. Or maybe a little bit more to the left and just practicing that kind of bossy massage idea. Mm. And so you're kind of just getting really fluent in communicating, to, and first of all, noticing desire. And then, uh, trusting that that's what you've noticed and then valuing that it's worth expressing and then communicating it. So there's kind of these like four places where it's so easy to get hung up from where you might notice that little whisper of desire and what you actually need to do to have achieved communicating it to a a person that you're with. And then you can, you can make it really, really juicy, right? You can make it a 10, 15 minute game. You, it could be whole body. If you're a partner, you're comfortable with doing that. You know, and it's just a way to sort of break the sexual scripts, especially with someone you've been with for a while or with someone new who, you know, it's like, how do you learn about each other's bodies and desires? It's a fun kind of game, you know? It's really good. I actually, I've just been reading your article and then I um, saw my partner and we had a problem. We had a fight and then we were trying to resolve it. We only had a certain amount of time to be together. So it was sort of this speed, like have a fight and make up kind of thing. And so we, you know, we started going into, a, you know, um, physically connecting and making out, but I could feel that we were in that energy of like trying to connect, you know, <laughs> and it wasn't, something wasn't quite right. There was too much urgency. We were too in our heads, you know, and, and luckily I'd just read your article. <laughs> so <laughs> I said, maybe we try something. I pressed the pause <laughs> button and we did it. 
And awesome. it was great. It really was great because it just put genuineness back on the map. You know, it really did. Mm-hmm. So I'm a fan and I think the implications are really good as well. And something I've sort of started bringing more awareness to in my, my friendships and conversations is kind of consent about where we're going in our conversation. Like, are you, you know, I would love to download about the situation. Are you up for that? Or should we save that for another time or, you know, and that becomes more real. Absolutely. And you sort of don't risk the relationships like slow death by a million cuts of not, <laughs> not having those check-ins, not saying when something's too much, not repressing yeah. it, repressing it, repressing oh, it, you know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I often say that the wheel of consent work has, I mean, it's been powerful for my relationship to my body and my sexuality, but I, it sort of transcends that in a big way and like in, influences every relationship dynamic that I'm in now out in the world. Oh, that's wonderful. I love this conversation. I hope we get to have more conversations. I would I love feel like that. You're <laughs> such a, a, a resource and a kindred spirit. Um, I know we're, we're nearly at time, so I want to, to kind of really circle back to you, your work, and at the end, I want you to tell us how we can find you. But the, the bigger question of sort of where do you want to take your work? What's your, what's your dream for your work and, and the world of, of sex and psychedelics at large? Um, you know, I want to continue um, exploring and I have sort of little protocols that I've been developing for how to kind of have a healing program sounds like a script, but sort of like a sequence of like, maybe I'll work with a microdose or a low dose of this medicine. And then I'll do this kind of somatic sex education work. And then we'll have an integration session. And then we maybe we'll do a different medicine. And like, what are the ways to weave that might involve like maybe microdose or very low dose medicine work? simultaneous, but are more about going back and forth and like, how do we specifically use psychedelics to assist coming into deeper embodiment and more pleasure? Because I actually think that that, you know, I'm actually a radical in my desires for radical change from the roots change in this world. And I really believe that a population that is disconnected from its desire, from the valuing of its needs and desire and from its body cannot demand the culture shift that we need to meet the challenges of this moment. And so for me, I have a very politicized somatics lens of wanting to, you know, fuck our way to the revolution is my like jokey way of saying it, but you know, (laughs) know what I actually mean, you know, I mean, you know, that I think it's radical. I think it's Audre Lorde, the erotic, you know, as power. You know what? It's viable. Exactly. I think so too. (laughs) I think so too. That has some appeal. Yeah. Um, (laughs) It's pragmatic. Exactly. Yes. 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 (laughs) That's it. So yeah, I'm really excited that, um, you know, there's, I feel like there's just a wave of people popping up wanting to talk about these things together and we're going to evolve so many new ways of approaching and and weaving together. And I love that. Absolutely. Anytime you want to bounce these ideas around, I'd I'd love to. I'm I'm right there with you on, on the weaving. And tell us, how do we find you if you want to be found? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I do. Um, So I am Britta Loved. So my name with a D at the end, like it's past tense on all social and BrittaLoved.com. I work with people in some limited capacities over Zoom as well as in person in New York City. I'm working on being able to do more one-on-one work in upstate New York where I'm moving now. 
And yeah, I'm always welcoming people following, reaching out, connecting um, who find residents because we've got to co-create a different world together. So let's do it. 100%. Thank you so much, Britta. You're so welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me.